welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. In this episode, we'll be featuring an interview that I did with Chris Daffy, um, the customer service kind of, again, he doesn't really like the word expert, the customer service specialist, <laughs> uh, and Chris has certainly been around a long time. Yeah, I think Chris has perhaps been around even longer than you and me and TLF, TLF Research. Um, and one of the things that, that Chris is well known for, he, he's so experienced, he just talks an awful lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've got Chris at our Customer Insight Conference in November as the keynote speaker. Yeah, so coming up on the 6th of November in London, uh, our Customer Insight Conference with Chris Daffy as the keynote speaker. Uh, and then there's a few of us from TLF speaking about really uh, the different stages of, of building a customer experience research program. So understanding customers, measuring where you're going, and then doing something with it and communicating the results. And we've also got a, a client case study from Plastribution, which I think is going to be a really interesting, specific example uh, of some of that storytelling stuff. Looking forward to hearing what you and Chris had to say. I'm here with Chris Daffy, the customer service expert, Hello. guru, nice author, <laughs> conference host, uh, etc., etc. Really just to have a quick conversation with Chris about trends in the world of customer service, where it's going, where, where, what predictions you have for the future, um, and that sort of thing. We'll see where the conversation takes us. Um, so thank you very much for joining us, Chris. Thank you. It's a, I'm a pleasure to be here. I'm a bit flattered that you should think I've got anything worth saying, but I'm pleased to, to, to provide any information that you'll find useful. Well, I definitely know that you have got a lot <laughs> worth, worth saying. Um, and you've been in the world of customer service, um, framed in the right way, but for quite a long time now. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, I often say 20 years, and my wife always reminds me it's been more than 20 years, and I keep saying, well, you're just ageing me, just leave it at 20 for now, um, but 20 plus years, yes. So we, we were just looking at your first book, uh, Once a Customer, Always a Customer. When did that come out? 1996. 1996, wow. Well, that yeah. does age me, doesn't it? <laughs> we, yeah, we could... We... <laughs> Three rewrites since then, but... Has it indeed? Well, it, we were just saying, actually, it does, I think, stand the test of time very well. There's, there's not... You know, all the, all the principles, all the kind of fundamentals are very much still true, aren't they? I agree, I agree. Um, new ideas, new techniques, new technologies come along, but they don't change the principles. The mm. principles is how, how do we relate to other people? Mm. The basic thing is person to person. And what changes have you seen in, in those 20-ish years since you started? I think there's been a change of focus. I think if you remember back in the early 2000s, I was very fortunate to be able to chair what was then the European conference on, it was, it, its name changed on customer mm. service, on customer management, it changed. But I spent about four years or five years chairing that. And I used to be intrigued by looking at the titles. There was always a big board in the entrance to the, to the conference room and uh, the name of each delegate, the company they were from and their title was there. Mm. And it was really interesting just over those few years because it was always initially customer service, head of customer service, customer service manager. Then the IT people came along mm-hmm. and invented this thing called CRM. And so you started to see people with the title customer relationship manager. As you will know, it's changed again. And now people like this phrase experience in their title. So we're seeing head of experience, director of experience. So it's moved on. And I think that's quite a good trend because... The titles are reflecting the focus that's necessary. I don't think we're there where we need to be yet, as you'll know from my latest stuff, because I, I think the focus is not on experiences. It's just a step to the focus, and the focus is loyalty. The goal is to build loyalty. 
because from that comes what we want, which is business growth and, and, and profitability and, and, and more sales. We want that. So uh, I'm, who knows? Maybe my dream will come true in a few years and people will be called customer loyalty manager or head of customer loyalty. Who knows? It, so that's changed. It's a really interesting perspective, that, because in some ways it's the same people doing similar things and the, and the name changes, but the name sort of carries a bit of meaning, doesn't it? So customer service sort of sounds inherently reactive or like an add-on, an after-sales kind of thing. Customer experience, I think, implies that it's something that you design, it's it's the whole yes. context of, of the, yes. the experiencing the product or the service. Um, so that, for me, has more of a kind of systems thinking design angle on it. Agree. Customer loyalty really makes the link um, to it being part of the strategy. It's why. Why are we doing this? Absolutely. I, I was a student, if you like, you could say, of uh, Dr. Stephen Covey. And um, as you know, one of his core principles was always begin with the end in mind. Well, as, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the end in mind of the work that we do is to find a way to make our customers to choose to be more loyal to us than to anybody else. Mm. So as far as I'm concerned, that's the end in mind. Therefore, that should be our focus. And everything else is designed to lead to that. So that's mm. why. Other changes. I think the focus on the area that we're interested in has moved up the strategy ladder. It's more strategic now. There was a time when it was a nice to have. Oh yeah, it'd be nice to be nice to customers. Mm -hmm. So yes, we'll do that as well. I think now people realize that no, this isn't a nice to have, this is a must have. And therefore it's becoming more strategic. If you look at all the latest surveys of CEOs, particularly in the States, but it's coming into Europe and the UK as well, they're all saying that building a, um, a, a style of approach which builds loyalty or delivers great experiences is now strategically important to us. Mm. Another move is that there was a time when it was a business-to-consumer issue. It's becoming more important in the business-to-business -business issues. I, I would say that over 50% of the customers I'm currently work with are manufacturers or business-to-business. -business. That wasn't there 10 years ago. They were no real interest at all. Mm -hmm. Their focus was efficiency, getting better and better at what we do. And they've kind of done most of that now. So the answer is what next? And then what next is, is loyalty. And people are understanding the subject better. Technology's helped. R reading has helped. So the, the, there's a better understanding of how do we do this stuff. So th those are the one I've noticed. I, mean, I guess you too, because we've both been at it, but not, not so you necessarily, but your organisation. We were, we were both early... Thinkers yeah, in this area. I, I have been doing it for nearly twenty years. Yeah, okay. um, in fact, well, twenty years probably by the time this podcast goes live. Well, you don't look as old as me, so good for you. You've worn well. <laughs> I had hair when I started. <laughs> so if we if we look forward over the next maybe not twenty years, but maybe five or ten years, how do you see things changing? What, you know, what Again, it, it comes to trends, doesn't it? What are the trends? Uh, it, with, I can only claim for the organisations I'm, I'm working with. Really, I can't. Those I don't, although I'm, like you, I read everything that's around if I can. I think there's a better understanding that experiences are a, a way to achieve something more important, that loyalty. And I, I do think that's a trend. I don't think it's a strong enough trend yet, but I think it will be. It's certainly with the organisations I work with, they get it, mm. because that's why I'm working with them. I think there's going to be a lot more use of technology, but we need to be careful. In, I've got my new book just out now. I did a section on what's happening with technology, AI and all that kind of mm. stuff. 
And we need to be careful uh, of that. Technology can really help in, in gathering, manipulating and presenting really useful information. It can also deal with repetitive things, which is fine. And if what all you want is like when I'm ordering a book, I'm an Amazon freak. I buy two or three books a week off Amazon. And all I want to do is one click, send me that and that's it. And I want their recommendations, which make it easy for me. So it's great for that. When I have a problem, a human being steps in and they're normally really good at it. They write great emails if you ever had to had a yep. deal with a problem with Amazon. That's not a computer, right? that's not AI, that's a person writing to, to me. And so I think technology has a great purpose in helping to deal with the repetitive, boring stuff. But I don't think it has a purpose in building relationships. I don't think we can change that that is person to person. I think we're going to see an awful lot more business to business, manufacturing businesses realise that their next step is to get good at customer experiences and customer loyalty. I still think the vast majority aren't there yet. And it's probably because they recognise they're not as good as they need to be at operational efficiencies. But most of the smart ones are already looking at the use of lean manufacturing or system thinking and Six Sigma for removing unwanted variances and continuous improvement principles. They're doing that. But the point comes where so you're now as, effect, as, as efficient and as effective as your competitors. Now you're the same again. So you've made all the savings you can. Now how are you going to build loyalty? And so you've got to start thinking about what else we can do. And one answer is let's focus on relationships. You're turning yourself into a commodity otherwise, aren't you? Yes. It's a sort of race yes. to the bottom. Yes. Yes. And when, of course, what happens is one of... Michael Porter's famous quotations is that when everything is equal, people buy on price. Yeah. So if you're seen as no different to everybody else and you're being forced down this spiral of, of reducing prices or more competitive markets, you've got to make yourself as efficient as possible. Hence, many manufacturers are doing that or business to business people are doing that. But eventually you're all at where you can be. So they're still faced with the question, if you've ever studied Chell Nordstrom, the guy who wrote Funky Business and those books, he does some great presentations and he kind of says, so when everything's the same, what do you do? And the answer is the peacock. In other words, you've got to become a peacock. You've got to have a fantastic display of the way we look after our customers that, that the male peacock has to attract females in a boring market. When you're as smart as you can be or as uh, whatever, as lean as you can be, now what? Well, you've got to be as sexy as you can be. Yeah. So you've got to be the great go-to company where they're fantastic people to deal business with. I, I agree with that. And I, I think that the trap, though, is what I see a lot of B2B suppliers doing is thinking they know what the customer wants so that they create this brilliant value-added product or service and they unleash it on the market and no one's interested. I agree. Yeah, yeah. We know what our customers want, but we've never asked them. Yeah. We just know. And it's not necessarily arrogance, it's, a, it's just a false belief. Mm. We have salespeople who knock on their door every month and they can tell us no. They only hear what the customer wants them to hear. They don't hear what you need to hear. You mm. don't hear that. Yeah. A good question is, do you ever lose a customer you didn't know you were going to lose? And if the answer is yes, well, you're not that close to them, are you? So uh, I agree completely that um, you don't know what you need to know until you've asked the person who knows what you need to know. And that is not your internal people. Although, yes, I agree, people close to the customers know a lot of it, but they don't know all of it. Yeah. You've got to speak to customers. And ideally, you've got to have an independent organisation do it. I often use the analogy, if I want to know if I've got bad breath, 
you don't uh, you don't ask the person you're speaking to. You ask somebody to ask them. Does he think I've got bad breath? Yeah. And for the same reason, because <laughs> they they're probably polite and say, "No, you haven't, Chris." Mm. Ask somebody else to ask them, and they'll say, "Well, I didn't like to say that, but he has." Yeah. Now you'll find out, and that's where you need this independent approach to it. That's a really good analogy, actually. Yeah, and it's just. Most people are nice. And they don't want to be nasty, yeah. yes. And different nations. I mean, for example, you probably know the Japanese are intentionally nice and they'll mm. never give you a bad score, but they'll never give you a great score either. Because, yeah. you know, you're a researcher, you've done research, you know. So, you know, don't expect to get tens and zeros from Japan. They'll all be around the middle. That's the way they are. Trying to use NPS in Japan is always, always yes. interesting. Yes. yes. I was going to ask you about your kind of bugbears because um, <laughs> I know you have strong opinions, Chris, and, and you know you've been in the industry for, for a long time. So uh, I imagine you have a, a stock of stories of things that have wound you up over the years. So what are the things that that you see? Um, obviously not in your immediate context, but perhaps going around as a as a consultant or as a as a customer. What are the things that really annoy you? The perhaps frustrations more than annoyances, but some do get irritating. There's this, uh, I'm going to upset some people now, but there's this thing that's going around at the moment, which I, I do find irritating, that you can call yourself a professional in this field by spending three days of training and reading a few books. You've been 20 plus years at this. I've been 20 plus years at this. I'm not saying you need 20 plus years, but the general thinking is to be a classed as a professional, you need 10,000 hours of study and experience, 10,000 in any field, 10,000. Yet there are people who stick a thing after their name that says, no, I'm a certified professional in this and I've done an online course or I've spent three days going to a training program and I stick a thing after my name as a professional. That concerns me because I don't think they are professionals. Mm. Another issue, which again, you will understand, is that I do think to be able to give sound advice, you have to have not just depth, but breadth of experience. So if you've only ever worked in one sector, you understand probably that sector, say you're from retail or say you're from whatever. That doesn't mean you have any worthwhile knowledge other than a very little bit in other sectors. Well, we've both spent years working, I'm looking at your lists on the wall here, pretty well every sector you could imagine and mine's very similar. And that's taken 20 plus years of working with all kinds of organizations in different countries, in different sizes, organizations that builds a breadth as well as a depth of knowledge and it's not just me I don't care who it is there's others around mm. you just I just think if you really want to be in you know currently there's this research is appearing I don't know you've done it yourselves but I'm sure if you did the same in the UK you'd find the same most of the implementations of what you call it customer experience or or service excellence or whatever are failing 80% are not justifying the investment made in them I'm not surprised if we've got people who've spent three days or a few online courses now calling themselves professionals and letting them tell you how to implement this stuff. I'm not surprised that so many are failing. Um, so that's an, an irritation, really. Mm -hmm. Another is there are a lot of organisations who have no problem putting together the resources necessary to invest in uh, operational efficiency, buying the software to provide the information, to know how to, to tell you what needs to be done to improve customer service, spending the money with, with yourselves, research. And then you come to, so what are you going to do with all this? Um, what are you actually going to do with this information you've got? And often the answer is, oh, well, we, no, we don't have much budget for that. We're going to do that on a shoestring. 
and then they wonder why they can't get in results. But we did the research, yes, or we bought the software, yes, but that's not going to get, get what you need. It's not going to change behaviours, um, which is the real challenge. Um, so that's a frustration that often the, the leaders of organisations aren't prepared to put the same degree of investment into the implementation of the ideas people like yourself can can give them the, the uh, what do you call them the priorities um, the PFIs yeah the, the priorities for improvement yeah the, the, they know they've got to be done but then they don't resource them which I think is ridiculous and then the final one is uh, I'm a student of John Cotter from Harvard Business School and I'm a big fan of his eight-step implementation program because most of the things I'm working on and I guess you're the same kind of thing you're at the front end and I'm hopefully trying to get them through to the back end of it the end of it so we need a program for, for doing what's necessary and that means you've got to change behaviors changing behaviors inside an organization of any size is difficult but as you get to middle to large company it's it's nigh on impossible for most organizations and again only 20% of the world's implementation programs succeed in achieving the results that were the, the, the goal for them and I've spoken to, I've been lucky to interview John Cotter a few times, and he absolutely believes, you know, to book on it, that the, the first hurdle and his first step on any successful program is creating a sense of urgency. And that's lacking for, in most of the big businesses where I've worked with until we've had a real go at the leaders and saying, I'm sorry, if you're not prepared to inject urgency into this, do not expect it to work. You'll spend a long time, you'll give it three or four years or maybe five years, and at the end of it, you'll think, so what have we achieved? And the answer will be, nothing worthwhile. Mm. It has to have urgency. So one of my frustrations, annoyances, irritations is um, the, the unpreparedness of leaders to inject urgency into this type of programme. I completely agree. Um, and I think the, for me, there's often a misunderstanding about the fact that changing customer attitudes is going to take a long time. Yes. It will. You, you need to start changing them tomorrow yes. uh, in order for it to take a long time. So if I say it's going to take you five years to get to the top of the league table, that doesn't mean you can leave it for five years. It means you start now. Start and if you're really right good now, at this, you you'll might, do it in two or three years. If exactly. you're really good at this. By all means, prove me wrong. Yes. And, and also, you will not change customers' behaviours because they're behaving the way they've learned to behave with what is currently your organisation. So the first thing you've got to change is the behaviours inside your organisation. And that's a major issue. That's not easy. Because whatever those behaviours are, as leaders, you've created them. They're there because of you, unless you're a new leader coming in. So your first step is to change the thinking and the behaviours inside your organisation. Mm -hmm. And then like osmosis, with the right actions, it will start to ooze out to your customers. But if you, if you expect customer behaviour to change, when uh, colleague behaviour stays the same, you're going to have su more failure than success. Mm. We're big believers in, in, we used to call it the service profit chain model, but yes, the, the idea... It's, oh, know, it's still very valid, that, yeah. It's such a, such a common sense model, really, to say, you know, customer behaviours drive profit. Yes. Customer attitudes drive customer behaviours. Our behaviours drive customer attitudes. Yes. And it just all flows back within yes. the business. And it's yes. just that chain... And really, I don't see how anyone could could disagree with it in principle. It's just then having that sense of urgency and commitment to, and therefore we're going to make sure, starting on the left hand side, we're inside the business. Yes, do we get everything we'll work right it through. Yes, give people Absolutely. the support they need, make them happy. Each thing step is a step to the next. The bit on on that model I really like is that if you look at the end goal, which is 
improved sales, improved margins and business growth, the one step in front of that is loyal customers. Mm -hmm. So I go, hallelujah, it's there. It was there 10, 15 years ago in the, in the service profit chain. Customer loyalty is the step you're aiming for to get what you want, which is growth, profitability, sales. Um, so it's the key step. Yeah, and I think the, that understanding that we often talk about customer lifetime value and, and all of those ideas, which, which, as you point out, they're from the mid-90s, but it's still very rarely genuinely committed to as a, this is the strategy that this organisation is, is working towards. You know, I would rather have profits in five years than profits this quarter. You know, good profits in the long term rather than short-term profits by cost-cutting or tricking a customer or yes. whatever else. I am. I, I, one of the words I invented was placitis. It means PLC-itis. Mm. And I'm afraid a lot of businesses, because they're a PLC and they're driven by quarterly results, suffer from PLC-itis. Mm. So they are maybe not happy, but forced into and therefore prepared to do things in the short term to make this quarter's numbers or end of year's numbers look good. And often they are mad things to do knowing that in doing so they're going to damage the business future but they're rewarded for short-term results and in many cases well i won't be here in three or four years time anyway so why should i worry um let's just do what i've been driven to do by owners whatever to 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 make those numbers look good so that somebody on the stock market can make some money for somebody else rather than what what's for the good of the business uh, long term when i'm not here will I've made a worthwhile difference to this organization's future. I am fortunate I work with a number of family businesses and mm. the, the thinking there is amazing. It's, yeah. You kind of think, goodness me, you guys, you do think generations ahead. You don't think next quarter or next end of financial year. You think generations. And it's lovely to work with. Um, it means their, their time scale on return on investment is longer. It is fascinating how often you know, read up a, a great case study in the literature, and you think, oh, that's brilliant, I wonder what it is about them. And no one ever really talks about this, but a lot of the time it is the ownership. You know, it is the fact it's a family business yes. rather than a publicly listed company. And yes. I, I think it is very hard for public companies. Yes, because they're, unfortunately they're driven by people who want a short-term return. Mm. I, again, I, I was a fan of Charles Handy and his writing years ago, and he used to talk about um, this problem that some businesses suffer, which is that they, they, they're not allowed to think long term. Mm. If you look at investors, stock market investors, they're no different to gamblers. They just go with the safe bet that gets the biggest return in the short term. Mm. They have no interest in the future of the business, majority, unless it's family owned. No interest. Just how can I make more money quickly? Except perhaps for Warren Buffett. Oh, he's different altogether. Oh yeah, he, buy, he, buy, he buys in for... Have you seen he's given... How much he's just granted to charities? I think it was three thirty something billion. He's he's handing over every money. So he's he's another one who's going to give all his wealth away to worthwhile charities before he dies. Mm. Branson's going to do the same. Um, Bill Gates. Bill Gates is going to do the same. There's quite a lot who said uh, I I will put my money where I know it will do some worthwhile good mm. before I've gone, which is a fantastic way to approach life. Well, it's certainly better than buying gold-plated yachts, isn't it? Which is the, the other option. <laughs> yes. No names mentioned. <laughs> well, that was that was very interesting. We've obviously cut it in half. Mm. Um, so part two of the interview will be next month. 
Yeah, it seemed rather than have a sort of one monster episode, it seemed to make more sense to to, to have two kind of manageable ones. And there was a bit of a natural break there. Um, so that seemed uh, like a good thing to do. Thanks for listening. If you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at tlfresearch.com. Thank you.